Children are dismissed, and good morning, church. What a day out there today. Weather. Wow. I thought it was very interesting this morning on my walk. I thought, Lord, uh, what a beautiful day to talk about idolatry. <laughs> As we continue our study in Exodus today, that's what we're going to be looking at. We have rain and thunderclouds and all of those things surrounding us outside. Before we get there, we are continuing in our habit of memorizing the scriptures and We've been memorizing some passages through Exodus as we've been in this book for our study. This is our last week with this particular verse from Exodus chapter 29. Let's say it together. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Exodus 29, 46. Idolatry. Can't we just skip this chapter? We don't deal with this anymore, right? This is an old-fashioned problem. This is a problem that the Israelites dealt with. Not American Christians, not idolatry, right? Wrong. For myself, for all of us. I thought this week... Uh, About some of my own idols, and perhaps you'd write at the top of your note guide this week, which is in the weekly, what are my idols? I know two of mine, comfort and control. Two of them were thrown into complete despair on Friday night. On Friday night, uh, I was asked to be present at uh, the track meet at Millersville University. It also happened that on Friday night, there were downpours, (laughs) hard downpours, that made things very uncomfortable. I was cold. I was wet. I wasn't super excited to be there. One of my idols, an idol of comfort, was being shattered, and I was not very happy. And you know, weather, weather, something we can't control, gets to be a little scary when things are out of our control. And I think about the Israelites, and I think about their life in the wilderness. And comfort and control were two realities that probably were not very present for them. A number of weeks ago, uh, maybe months ago at this point, my wife, uh, she put a quote on our refrigerator, and it has really been on my mind and in my heart, especially uh, approaching the scriptures this week and considering the golden calf. And the quote was this, None of us get stronger from a place of comfort. I'll say that again. None of us get stronger from a place of comfort. And I'm reminded over and over and over again that idolatry is not very far from my heart. And perhaps it's not very far from all of ours. If we're honest with ourselves and if we're honest with our communities, we would say, yes, yes, we struggle with idolatry today. We live in a culture, in a world that's filled with division. There's social division, economic division, political division, division in our churches and in our communities. We live in a time where feeding off fear is a way to unite people. Fear of loss, fear of lack, fear of attack, fear of insecurity, fear of discomfort, fear of what the future might hold, fear that we are all alone in this big, scary, unknown wilderness we call the world. 
And fear can be a motivator for all sorts of sin and idolatry. In our narrative today, this sort of fear is going to rally the newly formed nation of Israel to create for themselves a new God who they can worship. Last week we were left with a cliffhanger. Exodus chapter 31 verse 18 God gave Moses two tablets of testimony when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai. Tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And we're left asking the question, what happened next? And as we break the bread of the scriptures today, we will explore the root of idolatry. Where does it begin? How does it work itself out? Why is it so attractive? Then we will examine how God brings about restoration when his people are unfaithful and led astray. And then finally, we will reflect on a proper posture and response for God's people when we recognize or are made aware of our own idolatry. We're in Exodus chapter 32 today. If you haven't already figured that out, the testimony of the golden calf you want to take your scriptures whether they're online or uh, in your hand and turn to Exodus chapter 32 and before we read let's pray and ask God to help us in our time of study today father thank you for your word thank you for its power and its effect lord as we come today we recognize that this sin of idolatry is not one from long ago, that only affected a certain group of people, but it's one for today as well. It's near to our hearts. It's near to our communities. Lord, it's a sin that we need to repent of regularly because we regularly look to things other than you for comfort. We regularly look to things other than you for security. We regularly look... to things other than you for a sense of control and purpose. But Lord, you alone are enough. You alone are enough to sustain, enough to provide, enough to preserve, and enough to protect. In our study today, help us to realize this, help us to repent, to confess, And to turn from our idols. And to cling to the worthiness of who you are. And to the sustaining bread that is your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said... Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. In the landscape of the wilderness, the one visible constant for the Hebrew people had been the presence of their leader, Moses. And now, he was no longer visible. He had ascended 
to meet with God, and the length of his sabbatical had brought great discomfort to the people. Waiting is hard, is it not? We, many of us, I don't know any, we don't like to wait for things. That's why we have microwaves. People have grown tired. They've grown weary of not knowing what was going to be next and not being able to see clearly what was going to happen. And with Moses seemingly a goner, some of the people decide that they're going to approach the next in line leader in terms of visible leadership. His name was Aaron, and they come to him with a demand. Behind their demand is a sense of inadequacy and inactivity, coupled with feelings of uncertainty and fear that lie at the heart of their people. We aren't doing enough. Get up, Aaron. Do something for us. Make us gods. These gods surely will make us feel secure. They'll give us more certainty regarding our future. We don't know what has happened to Moses. You do something. Aaron's actions stoke embers of idolatry that are smoldering in the hearts of the people. He does not extinguish their felt need to create something to worship. Instead, he gives the people what they want to feel as if they're secure by doing something, accomplishing something to aid in their security or in their perceived salvation. And in making something that they could see and that they could worship, maybe once again they could cling to a comfort and a belief that a God was with them in their big and scary Wilderness. All of those chapters before that we have studied, that we had read, all of those verses that talked about the reality that God was dwelling with his people, the sanctuary, the instructions, all the care that was taken by God for his people to know that he was with them. And moments later, they're chasing, they're running, they're fleeing. They're lacking faith and belief that God is present there and now. And as they break off their gold earrings, the words in the text are intentionally foreshadowing the breaking of the Mosaic Covenant. One that had just been enacted a few weeks before this event took place. And as Aaron takes their jewelry, this word that's used in verse 4, the word fashioned, it is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, for God's creation of man. Here, in Exodus, however, the roles are reversed. Humans, who were fashioned from the dust of the ground, are now attempting to fashion a God to represent them. The Israelite people, they're drawing on old habits from their enslavement where they were covered in the polytheistic religion of Egypt. Their actions are proving the idiom that old habits, what? They die hard. Die hard. As verse 4 unfurls, we learn that at the root of idolatry and false worship, there is a lie. In fact, friends, all idolatry is rooted in lies. Lies that provoke our pride and lies that stoke our fears. In this case, the lie might sound a bit like this. Our one living God, Yahweh, isn't enough. He is not here. He cannot help us. He won't sustain us. He won't keep us. We are all alone, and we must do something. 
In verse 4, the message is proclaimed in this manner. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. But church, try as we may, we don't get to create or make God in our own image or on our own terms. We recognize and we relate to God as he has revealed himself on his own terms. And friends, an idol will always consume more than just our attention. Idolatry demands loyalty and allegiance. It happens. It happens here in the text. These are not just gods for them to worship now, but their entire lives begin to be ordered and oriented and fashioned around this false god that they'd created. There's a feast. There are burnt offerings. There are peace offerings. Day-to-day lives situated around idolatry. And so in the text, there's a clear pattern. First, a breaking off from the covenant promise to not fashion any other gods. Then a bowing and a worshiping of the gods that they had created. God is not happy. He's deeply disturbed. And Moses is about to hear about it. Look at verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses. Go quickly. Descend. Because your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have acted corruptly. They've quickly turned aside from the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people. Look what stiff-necked people they are. So now, leave me alone. So that my anger can burn against them. And I can destroy them. And I will make from you a great nation. Hmm. That word, stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people, friends, are a pride-filled people. And a pride-filled people can only bow to gods that they can control or manipulate. A stiff-necked and pride-filled people can only bow to gods that make them feel comfortable, safe, and in control. And in verse 10, God is going to test both Moses' commitment to the covenant and his heart for the people. And it is a test that Moses is going to pass with flying colors. Moses doesn't pass all the tests that he encounters in the wilderness, but he passes this one. Isn't it interesting? Verse 10, God says to Moses, leave me alone. Why doesn't Moses go? That would be obedient. He doesn't go. He doesn't listen. He does exactly what he should. Instead of leaving, he knows. He's a covenant partner. He stays. He stays for the sake of God's glory. And he stays for the sake of the people God appointed him to lead. He's interceding on their behalf. 
And God in his mercy has left space for Moses to intercede on behalf of the people. He's going to pour out his heart. He's going to plead for God to turn his wrath away. And his words serve as a clear example for our own intercession on behalf of others. Look at verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt? Notice that God had given Moses the credit in the verses before. Here, Moses takes the credit and turns it back. To God. The people you have brought up from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say? For evil, he led them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent of this evil against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants whom you swore by yourself and told them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have spoken about, I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. Verse 14, then the Lord relented. In some of your translations, it might say repented. In some of your translations, it might say changed his mind over the evil that he said he would do to his people. Why should God choose to be merciful to a people who are so unfaithful, so pride-filled, and so stiff-necked? And friends, I'm so glad he is because I am that people. The Bible's a mirror, friends. It reflects us back to us and teaches us something about the character of God. The character of God is what Moses is going to lean into in his intercession. And there are four reasons in verses 11 to 13 why God should choose to be merciful. In verse 11, Moses reminds him that these are his people. God's kingdom of priests. They are the vassals of the sovereign king. The people from which God was going to bring forth his own son to save the world. In verse 12, Moses leans into God's name. He wants God's name and power to be magnified in bearing with his weak and broken and often unfaithful people whom he had rescued out of Egypt. In verse 12, Moses indicates that if the people were just led into the wilderness and destroyed by God, that Egypt would be glorified over God and justified in their minds. And in verse 13... Moses is asking that God would demonstrate and show his own faithfulness, steadfast love and mercy in the protection and the preservation of his people. Moses is making intercession and as he does so, he's leaning on the impeccable character of God to stand above and beyond while bearing with the folly and foibles of his created people. For the sake of God's own glory and for the sake of his people's own good. Aren't we glad that God bears with us in steadfast love and mercy? Amen? We should rejoice in that every single day. We sang, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. That ought to be our anthem every hour of the day. Now, sometimes verse 14 disrupts us a little bit, right? Then the Lord 
relented or repented. I thought God never changed. What's happening here? There's different words depending on the translation, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to do an adequate job of answering this today, but we'll do our best. I don't tend to allow myself to get disrupted by the mysteries of our faith. I actually quite enjoy the mysteries of our faith. I don't desire to follow a God that I can completely predict or make sense of. God is much bigger, much greater than I could ever imagine. And God has not revealed himself or presented himself to us as a God that we are to completely be able to grasp and make sense of. How my intercessions and how my prayers affect God, I can't make sense of. I've tried. Maybe some of you have tried to think about this. What I can make sense of is what the Bible reveals regarding the effect of intercession and prayer. And what the Bible reveals in passages like this and others is that intercession and prayer is part of our real and dynamic and vibrant relationship and communication with God. Time and again, the scriptures communicate to us that our prayers have purpose and effect as they relate to God's wonder-working ways in the world. And this truth, friends, I believe in no way detracts from the truth that we pray to a sovereign God who knows all things perfectly, past, present, and future, and who desires a real and vibrant relationship with his finite people, us, who do not know everything perfectly. The power of intercessory prayer is a curious and imaginative part of our relationship with our Lord. And what this passage teaches me and should teach us, friends, is that our intercession has purpose and effect. Amen? It's why we pray. Because we know it's doing something. Why would we do it if it wasn't? We pray because it's part of this real, vibrant relationship that we have with the Lord. And some of us in this community have a heart and an orientation that's gripped by the power of prayer. We know of its effectiveness. We know because through history and through the testimony of our lives, we've watched what God's done through prayer and its power. One of our elders last Thursday challenged the elders of the church, and this is what I love about our elders who serve, they, they care about this community so, so deeply. And he said, he said in the room, and it was powerful and effective, he said, we need to be a praying congregation, a praying people. Amen. And, and I don't know how it works. I don't know the details of it. Certainly, we don't change the sovereign plans of God, and we don't have power over God in any way. But God wants us to pray. And when we pray, the scriptures show us that our intercessions and our prayers have effect. He is the potter. We are the clay. And as we relate to him, we embrace these areas that, of our faith that are unclear. They remind us, friends, that we walk by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And while God remains knowable to us, he also remains beyond our most skilled comprehension. So following his intercession for the people, what does Moses do? Moses, he's going to remove himself from this special presence that he's had with God, and he's going to descend to inspect the scene for himself. Now, how many of you in here have ever heard this phrase? Wait till your father gets home. 
What does that provoke in you? Wait until your father gets home. Aaron, Aaron's been misbehaving. The people, the people have been misbehaving. Dad's coming home. Moses is coming down the mountain. How will he respond when he sees what's transpired? And what is transpiring happens to be far worse than he could ever imagine or bargain for. Look at verse 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. The tablets were written on both sides. Now, scholars differ on how the tablets were made. Some of us grew up maybe in church and we were taught that on one of the tablets was the first five commandments and on the other tablet was the second five. Other scholars uh, believe that there was a copy that was supposed to be for God that was to go in the Ark of the Covenant that had five on one side, five on the other, and a copy that was supposed to remain with the people, five on one side, five on the other. Not quite sure. All we know is that he has two tablets and he's coming down the mountain. Now, the tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God. Engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, it is the sound of war in the camp. Joshua's always a warrior, isn't he? He's a good warrior. Moses said, it is not the sound of those who shout for victory, nor is it the sound of those who cry because they are overcome. But it is the sound of singing I hear. When he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became extremely angry. He threw the tablets from his hands, broke them into pieces at the bottom of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, poured it out on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. The breaking of the tablets here becomes a true symbol of the people's breaking of the covenant. And Moses doesn't stop with the tablets, does he? He completely destroys, and not only destroys, but dishonors this lifeless idol that had been built. He obliterates the golden calf beyond any recognition. He returns it to dust, and he makes the people drink its remnants. Eugene Merrill, in his commentary on Deuteronomy, notes that, quote, in this manner, the one thing that they had worshipped would become a product of their own waste. The very epitome of worthlessness and impurity. End quote. And if drinking the water sounds a bit unusual, it was something that would not have been uncommon to the people who were later reading this account. Included in the Mosaic Law, as you read through it, you'll find that there was a test for a woman who would have been accused of, of adultery. And this test included drinking what was known as the bitter water. And her reaction after drinking the water would later determine her guilt or her innocence. This is found in Numbers chapter 5. In this case, some scholars believe that this was the test that Moses would later use to determine who was to die because they worshipped the idol. And after the destruction of the idol, Moses confronts Aaron. And Aaron's response indicates how we sometimes respond when sin or idolatry is revealed and confronted in our own lives. Let's take a look at Aaron's response. Verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought on them so great a sin? And Aaron said, do not let your anger burn hot, my Lord. You know these people that they tend to evil. They said to me, make us gods that will go before us. For as this fellow Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, break it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came a calf. 
Now, if I had a bag of baking powder, chocolate chips, eggs, and sugar, and butter. Butter. We're Lancaster Countyans. We need our butter. If I threw all those ingredients in a paper bag, and I gave them to one of our students and said, go up and throw that paper bag in the oven, we're having chocolate chip cookies today. Would we expect that after a half hour, things would smell great up in the fever hall? Not really. Oh, Aaron. Moses saw, verse 25, that the people were running wild, for Aaron had let them get completely out of control, causing derision from their enemies. So Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. All the Levites gathered around him, and he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, has said. Each man fasten his sword to his side. Go back and forth from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and each one kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. Oof. The Levites did what Moses ordered, and that day about 3,000 men of the people died. Moses said, you have been consecrated today for the Lord, for each of you was against his son and against his brother. So he has given a blessing to you today. Moses doesn't mix words, does he? Aaron's brought this sin upon the people. He's promoted and participated himself in their idolatry. And doesn't Aaron's excuses, don't they kind of mirror Adam's in the garden? First blame someone else. It was the woman. Then attempt to excuse, justify, or defend the behavior. Deuteronomy says that the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he wanted to kill him. And Aaron speaks like the calf just simply appeared out of nowhere, like, like the plague of boils, like it was some kind of magic trip. Like, behold, boil, behold, a calf. And in verse 25, the other observation Moses makes is the people are running around completely out of control. It is the scene that many scholars believe was animating the mind of Solomon when he wrote Proverbs 29, 18. When there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But the one who keeps the law blessed is he. And Moses had already, in his mind, set forth a plan to restore order in making the people drink the contaminated water by the dust of the idol. The penalty for guilt was executed swiftly. Justice demanded death. But the punishment, it sounds severe when we read it. It is severe. But 3,000 of roughly 600,000 men, to me, is merciful. That's half of a percent of the men encamped at Sinai. Half of a percent, not even one percent. And another consequence that came as a result of this sin is that God appoints a special order of priests now to represent the people. Remember, when the Mosaic Covenant was enacted, all of the people were to be, as to God, a kingdom of priests. But now, because of this sin, and because of the Levites who came forward to represent the people, there would now be a special group, a group that would be called Levites, that would be appointed as priests. To serve God as priests. And more on this can be found in Numbers chapter 3. But what we see here is that at the end of idolatry and sin, there is only brokenness, disorder, and death. That's it. That's it. Oh, an idol starts out giving us so much hope. This guy's got all the answers. This thing will make me feel better. This will do it. That will do it. This will solve it. That will solve it. Nothing other than Christ alone. Nothing. The only escape from sin and death would be through an atoning sacrifice. Look at verses 30 to 35. The next day, 
Moses said to the people, you have committed a very serious sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement on behalf of your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a very serious sin and they made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you forgive their sin, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, wipe me, wipe me out from your book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, that person I will wipe out of my book. So now go, lead the people to the place I have spoken to you about. See, my angel will go before you, but on that day, that I punish, I will indeed punish them for their sin. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one Aaron made. The emotion of Moses' prayer is encapsulated in verse 32 with that apodosis, those three dots. And uh, we might read that as, oh, that you would forgive. It's emotive. Moses is grieved for his people. He loves the people of Israel. His compassion for them in this prayer is unmistakable. Moses here is painted in the light of a true father or a mediator for the people. Motivated by his love for the nation, he's pleading with God to be merciful to them and to take his life instead of theirs. Moses is willing to take a punishment that was due for the people Wipe me out from your book that you have written. Everything in Moses' life would be as meaningless if God would refuse to forgive the people and destroy them. And friends, the words of Jesus should entertain our minds here. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And for now, God would relent. But one day, there would be further consequence for their idolatry in the wilderness. Some scholars have noted that Numbers chapter 14, 27 to 35 reveals a time and a place in Kadesh Barnea when Israel's rebellion was finally full and the people faced the just consequences for their sin and other sins that were committed in the wilderness. Here, however... At the end of chapter 32, it's important that we don't stop here. Because the narrative doesn't stop here. God's not done with his broken, falling, sinful people. There's a proper posture and a proper response. And as we read on into the first six verses of chapter 33... We see the results of a people who are contrite and are humbled and repent of their sin. Look at verse thir chapter 33, verses 1 to 6. The Lord said to Moses, Go up from here, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, for you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this troubling word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments. The Lord has said, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I went up among you for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments that I may know what I should do to you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments by Mount, si by Mount Oreb. Chapter begins with God determining to remove a special measure of his presence from among the people. However, this thought deeply grieves the people. They recognize the severity of their sin. Perhaps not fully, but they know it grieved God. They're mourning. It says the word used here is mourning. 
And they're turning away from their sinful habits and their idolatry. Early in chapter 32, the people removed their ornaments to fashion an idol to worship. But now in chapter 33, the people are not putting on their ornaments to restore so that they might restore a right relationship with Yahweh and keep a special measure of His presence among them. In the imagery of the casting off of their ornaments, we're seeing a visual depiction of repentance. A turning back to God. Casting off their unfaithful and life-sapping allegiances, they're returning to their ever-faithful and life-giving God. And as we enter next week, well, the week after, into the third and final movement of this marvelous book that we've been studying together, we're going to be enlightened as we observe God's art of restoration. He will affirm And breathe new life into his people. Moving them from the wilderness and wandering around to the very threshold of the promised land. Friends, as children. As children of the living God. And disciples of Jesus. We are to be persistent in confession and repentance. In the casting off and the turning aside from the cultural, political Social, economic idols that consume, distract, disorder, and disorient us. The scriptures tell us that perfect love casts out all fear. And for the disciple of Jesus, the only thing or the only one that we are to reverently fear is God alone. If there is something in our lives that is consistently provoking feelings of anxiety, of hopelessness, of doubt, of worry, or of fear, we may have uncovered one of our own idols. And rather than fall into the enslavement and the trappings of modern idolatry, why not set our minds on Jesus instead? Why not align with his ways, his words, his patterns, his attitudes, and the example of his life? Could it be that the greatest way to make a difference in the kingdom of God in the world today is to live now according to the ways of Jesus? Letting go of anything that is other than Jesus, clinging to Christ alone, and in him finding all that we need for today, tomorrow, And forever. Anything, friends, that we cling to here in this world other than Jesus is an idol. One that we need to repent of and ask forgiveness of. Team, would you come as we pray? Father, I stand convicted today. It is the power of your word, the Spirit's work through it that brings to mind my own idols. Comfort. Order. Control. Success. Approval. Reputation. Pride. All of it worthless. need to be right. There are many others. My shelves are full. This is why I need you every day. It's why we need you every day. It's why we need the example of your son Jesus to go before us, to live within us, to be behind us and around us, leading us, 
guiding us and motivating us. Because in this wilderness, Lord, there are many attractive things to cling to that fleetingly give us comfort, a sense of comfort, that fleetingly give us a sense of security that are false and are fake. And their end is death. They distract us and disorient us. And Father, it's weeks like these when I'm so thankful for your mercy, for your steadfastness, for your patience to bear with me in much folly as I chase after things that are other than you. Lord, I suspect that in our community today and in the community of the church abroad, there are many strongholds that need to come down. Many idols that need to be shattered. Reveal them to us, Lord. And then help us to be not a stiff-necked and pride-filled people, but rather a contrite and humble people. A people who are willing to throw it all on the altar as a living sacrifice. Because that's what Jesus did. Lord, help us to not love this world, but to cling to your son, Jesus. And in doing so, might you work through us so that we might be salt and light when the world looks and says, what is with those people? Might they see that the one true living God gives us life, gives us joy, gives us peace, gives us hope, builds our faith, and causes us to love like no other. And might you be honored. All the glory that you deserve. given to you. In Jesus' name, amen.